Hello, I'm Derek Arden and welcome to Monday Night Live. Today we're going to concentrate on investing and we're going to have a little think about uh, why people fall for uh, Ponzi schemes, get risk, get rich schemes, etc. Because there's no such thing as a free lunch. I've got Matt Tunbridge with me. Uh, Matt's been a member of my Inner Circle coaching group for a number of years. He's a great friend of mine and he's um, now an IFA. Matt, you've uh, looked at Ponzi schemes. You've been the managing director of an insurance group. You've published your own uh, What Car magazine, similar, used car experts, uh, all on your own. You're a real entrepreneur. What got you into uh, uh, financial advice? Hello, Derek, and hello, everybody. Thanks very much. Um, well, when I got to a point uh, where I had a young family and um, we'd got the house, albeit, you know, the chunky old mortgage, you, your mind turns to what should I be doing in terms of savings and pensions and where should I be putting my money? And when I went to go and get some advice, I found that um, there was nothing that was uh, accessible and modern and online. And I found that the people I was talking to didn't really seem to understand business and underneath whatever it is you've got, pension, ISA, savings, ultimately you do have to invest it in businesses one way or another. So um, over a period of a good few years of doing my own investments uh, and my own family investments privately, I then got to a point where I wanted to move on and do a, to a new challenge. And this seemed like the obvious one to do to try and share everything that I'd been piecing together myself. And um, so obviously did the qualifications. And here we are. Fantastic. Well, uh, good luck to you moving on and chasing things that uh, you're very interested in. Now, you've got some slides for us, I think. So uh, shall we uh, kick off with them and uh, talk about Warren Buffett and a few other investing uh, yeah. Things that we should be doing, some of us are doing, but we know an awful lot of people that aren't doing them. Over Absolutely. Okay, thanks. So um, for the next 30 minutes or so, I'll tell you briefly about me so that you understand why uh, I hold some of the opinions I do and why I've researched some of the things I have. Then I'll tell you a few little stories about Warren Buffett that I hope you haven't heard through other things. And then we'll look at investing. And at the end of it, you'll have a checklist which ties it all together so that whatever you've got, pensions or savings or investments, you can check it against these ideas and see whether or not you're happy with what you're doing. So in 1992, I was uh, just starting secondary school. And I remember the major government and the uh, 92 recession. I remember listening to the radio and people being laid off at BT and uh, Norman Lamont uh, saying, uh, when asked if he regretted the country crashing out of the ERM, he said, uh, je ne regret rien. And I thought, this is all dreadful. I, I want to know how the world works. Um, I knew some people where their businesses were thriving, but at the time, my parents lost um, pretty much everything to a Ponzi scheme. And then they, it got worse for them because the solicitors and accountants all gave them bad advice on what to do about it. So everything I've done since, since I started work was is to, partly to understand businesses. And I started in sales and marketing and had a lot of fun doing things like uh, we worked for the Crown Estate and I uh, wanted to change the name of Regent Street to Quality Street and hang toffees off the Christmas lights. But uh, I was told the Queen wouldn't like it, so we couldn't do that. And um, I met the managing director and worked with the managing director of Lloyd's TSB on a project in Scotland and uh, the board of what was London Electricity and became EDF. And then 
I moved from that into publishing. So I'd always loved cars and car magazines. And I, uh, I started the magazine. You can just about see on the, it's the third of the three price guides on the left, used car expert, and it went up against Parker's and what car. And what cars always had a red and white cover for as long as um, I could remember. And I was the only one putting out magazines with different colors on and different news stories. And I think they felt I was chipping away at their sales. So they started to put out magazines with the same color as me. And I thought this can't be right. They can't be bothered about my little enterprise. So I put out a really horrendous orange one one month. And sure enough, they put out a really horrendous orange one. And I thought, okay, they are. And at that time, I learned all sorts of things about the businesses not being what you think they are as a retailer. So if you're in, if you were in publishing, and there aren't many people still in it, but if you were printing magazines, you had to run your print run incredibly tightly. Your money, uh, the news agents wanted as much of your money as they could. It wasn't the cover price. They, they took their cut of the cover price, but they also wanted listing fees. And there was this annual negotiation where you had to go in and they would want to take as much money out of you as they could. And so working with all these different groups, the media bars, you would end up having to put a lot of money to the news agents. You'd end up waiting a long time to get the money in from the distributor. And you'd end up waiting even longer to get the money out of the media buyers. And the way the advertising worked, I sat once with the, uh, the head of Ford's used car division, Ford Direct, and he said, uh, the thing is, Matt, whilst in theory I'm in charge of the ad budget, actually there's a global contract with WPP and it goes through series of committees and I don't have any say over where the ad's going. So I love your, uh, your magazine and your ideas, but I can't actually, I don't think I can actually sign off any ads for you. And then I moved on into um, Built Motor Easy with partners from a standing start to sort of um, 50,000 customers and 14 million pound turnover and worked very closely with underwriters, with Halfords, the uh, the car workshops who did brilliantly in the way they navigated COVID, even though their press is sometimes a bit negative and worked again with Autotrader. And I was amazed how Autotrader had reinvented itself as a digital business. In the trade press, you always hear about dealers moaning about them. But actually, when you walk around their Manchester HQ, you realize they're an incredible digital business and you're never going to doubt it. So the reason I'd tell you all those, those stories is just to say to you that the conclusion I've come to over 20 years is just reading the accounts in the trade press doesn't tell you what a business is going to be like. And if you're going to invest your money in something, you need to be really intimate with that business or you need to do it differently. You need to do it through index funds and things, which I'm going to talk about, because you simply can't get that intimate from their prospectus or the trade press. Uh, Derek has a phrase. It's getting the drains up, isn't it, Del? Getting the drains up, yeah, absolutely. You, really you know, understanding what's going on underneath the report and accounts and everything, Matt. Yeah, but you just you just can't do it as a, as a long-distance retail investor. So you're going to go out to the market, you're going to think, well, what should I do with my money? Where should I invest it? And the problem you've got is that everyone in the city or on Wall Street wants to be Warren Buffett or maybe Richard Branson. They want to be a big swinging dick. They want to be rich. They want people to look up to them and think they're number one in something. And... Obviously, I just picked Buffett as a placeholder for that concept because he's one of the world's most successful investors and has been going a very long time. Since 1965, he's provided a 20% average annual return, double the S&P 500. So there's three numbers here I'd like you to just remember as we go through the rest of this chat. One is the idea that 20% is what Warren Buffett can achieve for you, and that's exceptional. And that 10% is what the S&P 500, the top 500 companies in America by capitalization can achieve. 
But before we get back to that, um, let me tell you some of the observations I've had about Warren Buffett, because I've studied that. So if we're going to invest, let's see what he's doing. Can we do what he's doing? And he, um, you know, his PR is all about him being a sort of this lovely, gentle, granddad type character based in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, drinks cherry cola uh, for lunch every day and uh, lives in the same sort of house, drives the same old Cadillac, that sort of thing. And it's all true, but there are some details that uh, are left out of that story, which is that he has had uh, a Californian holiday home since the 60s, and it became uh, worth about $8 million when he sold it because it became one of those fashionable enclaves. And some of the comments that he makes in his annual letters and that you see in his press uh, and interviews are really good to follow, but some of them perhaps not. So he said for a long time, he said, never invest in a business you can't understand as a justification for him not being invested in technology when it was when it was flying. And then he changed his, changed his views on that and he invested in Microsoft, among others. He said in 21 that bonds are not the place to be these days. But in 2022, he said in another interview that he's probably the biggest, if not one of the biggest, buyers of government bonds. And that's one of the things he does first thing in the morning every day is talks to his member of his team about what bonds they're going to buy. So you can't trust everything you hear from these notes and these stories. Where's his best returns come from? Well, they haven't just come from reading the accounts. Um, in Snowball, his autobiography, it's quite uh, he's quite candid about a number of things. And he had all sorts of intel from people going out into the field. And when American Express was in big trouble, he put a big bet on them because when he had people out in the field talking to the retailers, when he got right under the skin of the business, much more than the accounts or the trade press would tell him, he realized that they were going to be all right. And that's, that's why he put his bet on it. So don't just take it at face value. You understand what it's, what's behind it all. And within that, I found some genuinely good points because if you look at his actions, of course, it's the actions, not the words that really make a difference to us. And he uh, challenged the hedge fund industry in 2008 to a big multi-million pound bet that they couldn't beat a passive index tracker of the S&P 500. And eventually, protege partners, a chap called Ted Seeds, took him up on that bet and uh, put 10 years effort into trying to beat the S&P 500 with their uh, hedge funds, but conceded before the 10 years was up because the writing was on the wall and $10 million went to charity for it. Um, so if that's what Buffett, and he said it more often now, he said when he dies, his will says that his wife's money will go into a tracker fund for the S&P 500. So if that's really what he's actually doing, Let's have a look at that and let's see if that's what we should be doing as well. But before we do, let's think about some of the other options because there's lots of stuff out there we can do. Now there's uh, venture capital trusts. So uh, the trade association for them, you'll find publishes figures from time to time about how much money has been generated as a government scheme. The government created it to bring uh, capital into the markets, to bring investment. But they are, I noticed they only ever publish the funds raised. So retail investors have put their money in because there's some great tax breaks. You don't hear very often about how much money people have made in terms of retail investors from these sorts of things. It's the same with the Real Estate Investment Trust, which again, great tax breaks. One of my customers, before he came to me, um, for some reason put a little bit of money into it, even though his finances definitely don't require him to do anything as complicated as investing in that sort of trust to get a tax break. Because at the Brits, we love a tax break. So we will often buy into something just for a tax break. But it seems to me with 
every um, venture capital trust I've seen that any customers shown me, yes, they've had the tax break, but they've lost more money than the tax break gave them. And then there's crowdfunding. That was all the rage for a while. And it's very exciting because you see all these new businesses and ideas and funding circle, for example, is a very good business offering you the opportunity to do that. And if you want to invest in something fun, great. And if you can spare the money, great. But I have a customer who uh, she can't, frankly, but she put £5,000 into an ISA in funding circle because she didn't know what else to do, thought it was a good idea. And it's worth about £78 now. So what you've got to understand about that, a lot of these things that will get pitched to you as a great tax break or the next new exciting thing is they want the money because they believe in the, you know, the thing they're going to do or institutionally someone thinks it's a good thing to do. The government thinks it's a good thing to do, but it's not for you and me, the retail investor, to get sucked into with our long term savings or pensions. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick break there to uh, get a glass of water and uh, I'm just going to comment on a few things and then get people to ask questions in the uh, chat box if that's uh, works. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, you, yeah. I mean, anyone that puts uh, all their money into one line of investment, whatever it is, whether it's Tesco or uh, uh, Amazon or whatever it is, is bound to catch a cold because what goes up must come down sometimes. Um I tried to read Warren Buffett's autobiography, but it would have taken me about two years. It was that thick and, uh, you know, well done on uh, reading it. I put uh, money into a venture capital trust once against my better uh, against my better judgment because uh, I like the guy. He was a nice guy and he was pushing me and he was using sales techniques. I'm totally with you. Never invest in something because of a tax break. I put seven grand in. It's worth uh, twelve hundred now and I've had a couple of dividends out of it. And that's a good I have one. no idea what they're I think, doing. I think, and I think that is a good one. I think they are. Um, you think it's a good one? I don't. <laughs> I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think there's a lot of fees being taken out. And that is one of the issues, isn't it, on investing? Because yeah. you need all the dividends reinvested. And if people are helping themselves to uh, lots and lots of fees to help you do that, that's a, that's a real issue. I know a lot of people on this program are savvy investors, but uh, we all slip up and we all know clients who've... Uh, slipped up as well um i do wonder how warren buffett's made 20 percent, but i see in the recent past it hasn't been 20 percent. and i hate to say it, i did wonder if warren buffett was a one was a big ponzi scheme as we were talking about um as we were talking about madoff but uh, that's all from me i'll let you carry on and see what questions we get in the chat box in a minute yeah, well thanks. Done. Thanks, Del. Okay. Um, so what's risk? Well, this is one of my favorite graphs because it's a great thing. You know, you do come across people, they've got a lot in cash because it feels good, doesn't it? And that's the trouble. The psychology of this is quite hard because things that are going up and down like a yo-yo don't feel safe. Things that are sitting there and nice and solid feel safe. But the fact is, in terms of the big picture of your main investment strategy, you need to have something that's going to beat inflation and cash isn't going to do that. Um, I saw there's a wonderful financial advisor in America, Nick Murray, and he does this great exercise in a book where he says, if you'd retired in 1973, you'd have had a heart attack in 1974 because there was a big stock market crash. But if you had just continued to safely withdraw four or five percent a year from those funds, left them invested, it all turns out fine. And I thought that's really interesting. I wonder what happens if you retired in 2007 and had your money in a world investment tracker fund. And what I worked out by going through the results of the uh, MSCI World Tracker for um, 
2008 through to 2021, is that you could have drawn as much as 8%. You wouldn't, if you had good advice, you'd draw a safer amount of that, but you could have drawn 8%. And over the following 14 years, despite losing 30% temporarily at the start, which must have been horrendous, you could draw £134,000 and have a £78,000 pot at the end of it. So you've drawn £34,000 more than you started with. You've still got a sensible pot. And I find that a very reassuring example when it comes to that thing about, oh, really, I've got to put my money in the stock market. That's just, that doesn't sit comfortably. So what's a good investment? Um, just to summarize this, blue chip index funds that are invested in the world's best companies. The reason it's index funds are not, I'm not saying here's how you pick 20 shares. There's loads and loads of books about how to pick shares, particularly in America. But um, that's partly because there, there are things to do with tax code that make it harder for, for funds to work, certainly for British um, sort of American citizens in England. But for us, we have these wonderful index funds. And uh, the reason Bill Gates is there in the bottom left-hand corner when he's very young is that he said when mobile phones started to come out, well, that'll be the end of Kodak then. And he was right. And Kodak was a massive brand through generations. And I remember it from my childhood and it's gone. And I don't know how you tell whether or not Amazon in the top right corner there, which is no longer a rough and ready startup like he's pretending to be in that photograph. He actually already had millions and millions of turnover and hundreds and hundreds of staff at that point. But it's, uh, it was a good marketing ploy to make it look like it was edgy. I don't know whether Amazon and Microsoft are going to continue to be two of the world's top companies. If you invest in index funds, though, you don't have to worry about it in the same way because a manager tracks, in this case, in this blue graph here, the top uh, 500 companies in America. And that plots what that index has done since the Great Depression in the 30s, through Vietnam, through two Gulf Wars, through COVID, through Black Monday. And in those drops where you see the pink and gray bars, it's horrible. Of course, it's horrible. But if you just stay with it and you continue to be only withdrawing a safe amount, your money continues to rise and beat inflation through all of those events. And if you've designed your portfolio right, you're not only in the world's top companies that adapt and grow, you're invested via blue chip index funds in parcels that are within the financial services compensation scheme. So you have layers of protection. And if you've done that, going back to those performances, 20% from uh, Warren Buffett, well, over the last 10 years, if you've just been invested in this way, in these quality funds that represent the world market, you'd have been in Apple and Microsoft, and you'd have achieved that 20% return on average compounded over the period. If you'd come out with a risk profile that said, no, I'm, I need something safer, you could have achieved the 10% that the S&P 500 achieved, but also protected with a big slug of government bonds. I'm not a huge fan of government bonds. I know Derek hates them. Is that right, Dale? I don't believe, well, I don't believe you can get 10% from government bonds unless you trade them and that's uh, taking an interest rate risk. But anyway, um, I am um, so the growth. two people in the box that have made a lot of money out of venture capital trust. So they put me back in my box. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do what I say, just listen and take your information in, Mac. So what this what this is, this portfolio has done is the equities have driven the growth. The, the bonds have been a drag on it. But in this last year, when it's been difficult, uh, they've been quite flat and given you that protection against the volatility. So uh, that's the summary. And that's, that's the checklist of things that I've found by studying what happened in 2008 and over the last year. And what's been happening for my customers is you want as much money as you can stomach in the world's best companies 
through quality index funds. You want them to be actually buying the shares. There's all sorts of index funds that they're called synthetic funds and they're using derivatives. You don't want any of that. You want actual shares in these actual funds with a tightly defined fund objective. You don't want something that says we're going to try and give you growth on a five-year rolling basis. You don't want anything woolly. You want to know that they're going to track the FTSE 250 or they're going to track the S&P 500. You want to make sure that you've got into what they call the mid cap. So you're in the top few hundred companies in each market, because if you're only in the top 100 or 50, you may find that things are a bit slow. You then do it in the major markets around the world, America, Europe, Japan, so that you get and you, you put, according to the capitalization of those markets, an equal percentage in. And then you try and stay within the financial services compensation scheme. If you can't do that, it's because you're extremely rich and that's a really, really good problem to have. Well done you. And if you want to have some protection against the volatility, government bonds do that, seem to have done that in each of the major events that I've been able to look at. Uh, whereas corporate bonds don't do that and high yield bonds don't do that. They perform rather like equities. So um, I hope that wasn't too fast. And I hope well, that was that's in there great. Yeah, no, I'm going to come back to you in a minute, but um, I just want to ask you a few questions there. So um, when uh, when you go to um, get advice from someone like you, you go through a great big checklist, don't you? And then you ask people what their appetite for risk is. Now, yeah. how do they understand that? You know, because it uh, strikes me, you just said, well, we need to do this, this, this and this. And what you're saying is you put them in a tracker that's maybe invested all over the world in different currencies uh, by experts. And we hope they don't charge us too much. But, you know, you go, well, I'm 35, 40. I've got a pension, some money in a pension. Uh, and you say, well, what risk do you want? I mean, how do you help them with that? So uh, some advisors, uh, they feel very strongly that uh, risk profile questionnaires don't work, but um, that we're obliged to do them by the FCA to try and get a handle on uh, your appetite for risk. Uh, some people call them mumbo jumbo questionnaires. They're, they're provided by lots of different companies in the industry for us. What I find is there's two parts to it. A, there's just, have you got a good financial plan? You know, have you got uh, guaranteed income for your essential things if you're retired? Have you got an emergency fund if you're working? How stable is your income? How much of your mortgage have you paid down? You get some of that fundamental stuff done first. Then ultimately, you know, yes, you do the risk profile questionnaire, and that gives you a steer as to someone's appetite for volatility, really. And then you start to show them some of the portfolios and what it would and wouldn't do for them and coach them. And you often find that someone starts at one level and then will say, actually, no, I'd rather go up a level. And you do that year on year. Um, and, you know, in years two and three and four, you improve things. Yeah. And um, you mentioned some of the investments like Amazon and Microsoft that won't be around. You, um, Apple taken a bit, Apple's taken a bit of a caning on its investment or its market capitalization recently yeah i mean all the tech companies have had a hard time but i think that's because they were the only people really doing well in the covid so they had a big a big ramp up yeah. and i think there's been a correction of that ultimately from what little i know I, as a as an iphone user as an amazon user i think amazon microsoft apple they're going to be around for a long time they're still fantastic at the moment for everything i can see i'm just i'm just saying that there's absolutely no way any of us here unless we do know the management have worked in the company have that sort of insight um you really can't know from the outside how long they're going to be at the top of the tree well there's a number of bankers on here and a number of accountants and we've um We've studied our clients and learned a lot and got a lot of wisdom and gray hair as 
as we went along. Uh, you mentioned the uh, report that counts. Uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, it's very difficult to understand a, a business from the report that counts. The real trick is to go and have a look if you were in banking yeah. and see what uh, you could see. We can't do that. Uh, the only person we can look at, Matt, is you, actually. How do we trust you and financial advisors like you? So there's obviously some basic things you want to do. You want to check that we're on the FCA register. You want to ask to see the qualifications. I show those in the first few slides of each of my presentations. So that's the first thing. Make sure you've got someone bona fide. And then you have to, you know, you have to hear their pitch. And um, not all advisors will say exactly the same thing as me. And that's really why I think you know, talks like this are worth me doing, because you know, you then have to do a common sense check. Do, do I really believe that that investment is going to work long term? Has it? And, and, and can they show to me how, how long it's been working for? Because I think if people come to you with anything that's the new hot thing um, or anything that's guaranteed, you know, they're red flags, they're alarm bells. If there isn't a bit of bad news in it and if it doesn't make good common sense, because... Uh, you know, if you take ESG investing, for example, uh, it was doing very, Remind very well. everybody what ESG is. So environmental, sustainable and governance. So essentially, you know, companies trying to do a good thing. And I think, and that's great. But again, I think if you want to champion those sorts of causes, you should do that um, by all means. But you shouldn't do that with your long term savings or pension. You need to be quite selfish about those and have those invested commercially and trust that we are as nations, as societies progressing. And we are. There is no better time to be alive and companies are cleaner and better. Um, but if you try and get into these ESG funds and the, the people that champion them will be very cross with me saying this you are buying into something that's a bit more volatile, a bit more, a bit less proven. And there's some odd stuff going on. Like sometimes you will find in an ESG fund, a tobacco company there is being invested in because they've met the criteria and so on. Um, so everything I've been trying to give you here today is about trying to stay out of those, uh, those hot topics and stay in good classic stuff that will work and uh, weather all seasons. Now we've got Justin Urquhart-Stewart on in two weeks time, which is great. Um, he says, uh, make sure you don't lose the capital. Don't lose the sodding stuff is his exact uh, language. And, he, and, he's, uh, and he's quite right on that. And that's why people say, uh, as a customer says to me today, oh, I don't like gambling, so I don't want the stock market. Um, yeah. Because there is that sense that, hang on, you're telling, you're telling me that I'm going to put my money in the stock market. Well, stock markets crash. But they don't, you know, if you're invested in the top few hundred companies of our index fund, yes, there could be some ugly dips. And I think that's why you've got to have that out front. But, you know, if the top 1500 companies of the world, which is what I'm talking about investing in, go to ground, that to me has to be a nuclear event of some sort. And we've got bigger things to worry about. You will only lose the capital if you sell at a low point and lock in that loss. So again, you want your financial plan to mean that you don't have to do that. Now, um, one of the things you have to do here is reinvest the dividends, don't you? Which is which pension funds yeah. do and um, ISAs do for you as well automatically. Um, but the other thing is uh, charges, isn't it? Charges. It's a big thing. Yeah. I could yeah. I could name one particular smooth firm. I won't name them who have massive every charges. everyone knows who you mean though so any, anyone that's worked in the city yeah um, yeah well probably yeah. people on here don't know but if you want to call me privately i'll tell you but uh, i won't say it on here how do but we then, avoid yeah. massive charges because there's hidden yeah. charges yeah well first of all um you know i think it's 
you have to pay what you're comfortable with. And I think it's okay. You, you know, you also don't want to pay somebody nothing and find that they give you precisely no value back. You know, um, if someone is adding value, then they're worth paying to get quality and you don't want them to be under pressure and start making bad calls for you. So you, and you say you don't want them to be relying on the commission from the insurance policy. You want them to be paid sensibly. So the people you're talking about, I think uh, Derek published a chart that says we only charge 2.5%, but most independent uh, financial advisors, when everything is paid for, the platform, uh, the trading charges, the funds, you know, it should be 1.5% or thereabouts a year. And you might go, 1.5%, that's horrendous. But if it includes designing a full financial plan of all your finances, gives you a, a customized uh, investment strategy to your retirement date or your uh, lifestyle, keeps you in the good stuff that means, whereas your pensions were doing 3, 4, 5%, they're now doing 7, 8, 9, 10%. Um, it's paid for itself many times over. But if we go back to some of those funds you were suggesting we should be in, and I get that, and I like that idea, and I'm, I'm doing that, there's hidden charges in there sometimes, isn't there? Three, four, five percent I've seen in the Financial Times. Yeah, you can get some funds are expensive, and I think, um, but trackers generally, trackers including platform charges, will work out to be about half a percent. And if it's any more than that, then you're probably, you're, you're paying a lot. And if you're doing it DIY, you should be paying less than half a percent in total, really, I think, for all of your costs. And what about people like Terry Smith, who've been rated like mad and uh, et cetera? Yeah, um, well, he's just published his latest letter and um, they've taken a hit for the first time. And uh, but he points out that uh, unless you were in energy, uh, you will have taken a hit, too. Uh, and there's some merit in that, although if you'd had money in Turkey over the last year, you uh, could have made huge sums as well, albeit why you would have put your money into a high inflation economy that's um, all over the place. I don't know. Um, I have some money with him because he's interesting and he's uh, he obviously talking about accounts earlier. He wrote one of the good books exposing bad accounting practices back in the day. Um, but he, he his investment strategy, A, I think, so he's an active manager. And the problem is he's done brilliantly and he's, he's, he's had this mantra for a long time about being invested in uh, everyday consumables. And you only need 25 uh, companies to replicate uh, the world index. And these are all exciting points that sound great. But he's now invested in Facebook. I don't understand how that's an everyday consumable. Um, and the trouble with having 25, just 25 stocks, rather than having your money spread through index funds around 1,500 or so is, as he said in his COVID uh, newsletter, uh, all the money we've got in travel might vaporize and we'll lose 5%. And that's losing 5% in the actual investments. That's not having a temporary dip of 5% because, you know, your government's dropped the ball as ours did last year. So I think, um, you know, he's entertaining, he's interesting, he's very successful. And as I say, I've got a little bit of my money with him out of interest. But um, to me, it's not the best strategy because it's, it's active. And if he starts to put more and more into Facebook, uh, I just don't understand why that's a good idea. Okay, we've got time for two or three more questions before you summarise and remind people how they can get in touch with you if they want some advice. Um, financial services compensation scheme. You mean that's for cash, don't you? £85,000, is that, is that right? or was uh, No, uh, investment funds uh, can be protected by it as well. Uh, obviously, you've got to check that it actually is. Um, but if you've got your money invested in parcels of £85,000 in uh, the right schemes, then each of it is protected. Okay. Um, John Lesby says, isn't it an FCA requirement that full charges are disclosed? 
uh, is it called AMC? I've no idea what that is. Yeah, so um, full charges do have to be ex um, explained. And when you're doing it in an advice process, you write a report and you meet and you chat it through and it's really it's really in your face. Um, when you're doing DIY, though, you know... Uh, DIY means not going through someone like you. Yeah, so you just go to an online platform and you join up and then you you go, oh, I don't know which fund to invest in. Oh, that one looks good. Derek said that. Derek mentioned a bloke called Smith. I'll invest in that one. Mm. And you get, you know, you get a wad of papers. Um, and do you read it? And uh, do you understand it? I'm not sure from what I find when I talk to people. Well, when you read reporting accounts or when you read um, uh, all sorts of small print, uh, people don't read it. And if they do read it, they probably don't understand it. Yeah, uh, when I worked, as I said, when we were running, running the insurance business and people were complaining, they would sometimes say, yes, but no one reads the small print. <laughs> so, yeah. You know. <laughs> I don't think that stands up in a court of law. It's, it's not a winning argument for a complaint, but it, it's honest. So, you know. Yeah, no, no, that's it. Okay, Matt. So we're coming to the end of this part of the interview. Will you stay on and answer a few more questions from yeah, sure. individuals that might not want it on the recording? Uh, yep. Remind me how people get hold of you that are watching this on YouTube uh, yep. and what a sensible advisor uh Somebody a bit younger than me that's a bit smarter than me. But you're uh, so get... you're so young, Dell. So young. Yeah. How um, do they get how do well, they get hold of you? So Stop my name's my name's Matthew Tunbridge. I'm a financial advisor. So the initials of the web is the website address mtfa.co.uk. And Matt, you'll join us at the uh, next top masterclass. I hope that we're uh, we're running in April. If anyone wants details of that, uh, come. Would, would, wouldn't miss it Del, but will i be allowed a proper seat this time or will you make me sit at the back again we'll see it depends <laughs> on how you behave and what advice you give me matt tunbridge thanks for joining monday night live good luck with your new venture and everything you do and i hope to see you back here on monday night live with some of your successes in the next few months